0: Welcome to the podcast of the Talberg Foundation. My name is Martin Kutz. I'm a board member of the Foundation. In this podcast, we present a selection of recordings from one of our events. This episode features reflections on the workshop New Thinking for a New World, which was held in Nairobi, Kenya. The session focuses on the systemic changes taking place and how they are shaping Kenya's relationship with the world and the world's relationship with Kenya. Key features in this discussion are optimism, youth, values, leadership and governance. The session also explores the evolving relationship between Kenya and China. These topics were discussed by Fishaka Desai, Senior Advisor for Global Affairs to the President of Columbia University, and Mark Abadodian, CEO of Acertas. The session was moderated by Alan Stoga, Chairman of the Talberg Foundation, and recorded on 14 November 2019.
1: We have just spent a couple of days in Nairobi with the Telberg network that gathered here as well as with our Kenyan hosts. Top-of-the-head impressions, Vishaka?
2: Um, I do think that the diversity of voices is one thing that will stay with me because people came at issues from a number of different angles. On the other hand, one thing that kept coming up for me was young people and the urgency of dealing with the incredible amount of young energy that you see in this country.
1: I wanna come back to several of those points, but first impressions, Mark, or or lasting impressions. So
3: what was very exciting and actually
1: um, inspiring
3: was to look at it from the Kenyan perspective. sitting in New York or Washington or Los Angeles, we're looking at the sky is falling and and we're looking at all all these problems here. Um, But uh, they had a very fresh and optimistic perspective that uh, the the future was actually malleable. They could actually take the lead in several spaces.
1: I wanna pull on that thread first. Um, There is this optimism and I probed the optimism a lot and what surprised me about it, it, it's not based on anything. Or rather, it's based, as as you add facts to it, the optimism recedes a little bit, then bounces back. Um, Now, is that just because it's a very young country? Is it because they have no choice but to be optimistic? Mm -hmm. Vishaka, did you have...
2: I do think that it comes from two different sides. One side is to recognize that they have resources and they really own their potential. I do feel that the other thing about optimism is the engagement because the young people know why they're frustrated and what needs to be changed. And they want that possibility so that there is some sense of when I take over, I'm not going to be like these people.
1: But at the same time, everybody complained about the lack of values, not just in the leadership, but through society. I literally sat next to a very senior educator who said, our schools need to start teaching values because our kids don't have any values. All they want to do is get rich fast. So the same kids who are saying, we don't like the system, uh, this, uh, this this city, Nairobi, actually has more Bentleys than Manhattan. So how do you square that? I want to be rich. I want flashy clothes. I want to dance all night. Um, And I don't like the system.
2: Now, it's possible that people who came to the Talberg workshop on ethical leadership were kids who care about this issue. And they were saying that we must pay attention to the fact that don't just count on our leaders not being ethical. What are we doing? And we must start with where we are. Point is that there are enough kids who do feel this way.
1: But how do you know there's enough, is, is the question. But Mark, what do you think? Um, but these
3: people actually know what's going on um, and have a sense of the market. They have a sense of the opportunities. So that's why I think they're looking at the upside. But I want, I want to put that together with the values. And um, you know, a lot of times having this you know, Western scientific optic, we forget to bring the human side with, with the development and the economics. I want to ask the question, what are those values? Are those values of leadership something that should be imposed? Who's come up with them? Um, Because I fundamentally believe that they're going to create the values. They're going to create the values as they emerge, as they go out in the markets, as they start taking leadership roles.
1: But don't you think there are universal values that are neither Eastern nor Western? Isn't that what happened in the 40s?
2: I do think there's some things that are universal, but not all. Oh, for sure. And another thing I would say, apropos of what Mark was talking about, is that I do think that this is a society in transition. But why this transition becomes so much more complex is that things are happening at multiple speeds at the same time. And it has partly to do with global Local transition from the tribal to national, all happening at the same time. And I think as a result, the difference between, I believe, Kenya and let's say the global north, because I see a little bit of this in India too. And that is that when the societies are in transition, even if they're compressed time and compressed space, they are feeling that there is a possibility that we are best is yet to come. And I think that idea that our best is yet to come because we have not realized our full potential and therefore there is an aspiration to recognize that. So what I'm saying is that the optimism comes from this place of uncertainty rather than a place of decline. And that is something we feel so much more in the global north. Well, to that point, I had the
1: opportunity to spend... probably too much time with politicians during the last several days, I, I found myself in the middle of a conversation about elders and with, with several elders demanding that elders should be back in charge of this country. And what's wrong with post-colonial uh, constitutions is that you've stripped out uh, the role of the elders um, and, in fact, not really sure you wanted—I I couldn't figure out but where I want to take that, though, is pan-Africanism. I don't know if you had any sense of that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think what's really interesting to actually see here on the ground and experience is um, the same dynamics of the political culture, the social culture, the economic culture here for the Kenyan identity. they're going to figure out what's the
1: right level of political administrative unit. Um, Although the fact that they're on their third constitution tells you that they're not, they don't think they figured it out yet. So,
3: but is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I think that's a very good thing. Um, why is because if we look at some some of the things you know we're talking about right now in terms of globalism, um, the Washingtonian consensus, uh, the Beijing me- consensus, Beijing consensus. Um, that was written 70 years ago and the underlying dynamics the shifts of power the identities you know the transaction flows in the uh, global system have changed fundamentally and the rules the rules need to be adjusted Um, they're going through that right now and so i think that You know they're going to discover what's the right identity um, and the right level of governance. And when they do that, and then they ink it in the Constitution, um, that's going to provide some sort of social equilibrium. However,
1: that's not static. I want to turn that into a question for you, Vishaka, because this stream and where you were going with youth, I think is something to be teased out. I have a bit of a sense that the people thinking about the Constitution are people that are different from the people you were talking to as students. And my concern being a, my my my, one issue that I would worry about is whether or not those two streams are headed in opposite directions. That you have a bunch of people who have experience with constitutions, they're thinking about history and they're thinking about other models, and they're trying to jury rig some kind of new structure. And you have kids who are saying, ah, we don't think any of that is the right way to go. And I wonder if there's a potential disconnect
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, actually, when I asked, because when I was at the University of Nairobi, there was a lot more time to ask this question, but I also asked some of the students here, that when I asked them about how do they think about tribal, ethnic relationships, the first thing that students said in both circumstances was that, actually, for urban people, it's not really relevant. I don't know why the elders keep talking about it. Then you ask again, and a student would say, why do you say it doesn't really matter when you go and look for a job if you are from the same tribal community, you're going to get that job and the other one is not. Why do you say that it doesn't matter because the politics runs that way? So they are making a distinction. Now, these are urban kids between how they think the system works and how they think the system should work or how they think they connect with one another. So there is a distinction between themselves saying, we don't do that, but we find it ingrained in the system. Then I also met the new head of the integration commission. So while they're talking about decentralization, giving the power being being local, going back to the tribal configuration, they're also trying to figure out, which is what you were suggesting, that somehow we have to also pay attention, that you can have pride in one place, but it has to be international context so they are trying to actually try to kind of chew gum and talk at this and walk at the same time but can they manage it um
1: so let's go out of africa a lot of what we talked about because this is Telberg, it is about the global conversation uh was in africa but about the rest of the world so uh, of that part of the conversation what most struck you mark um thinking about it and and it kind of goes back to you know
3: kind of the technology and the the governance questions right Um, they have a wonderful opportunity to leapfrog a lot of mistakes that we've made in the west and we've learned throughout latin america and east asia i think you know they're looking at the east asia development kind of model right now for the tigers um but And as Vashaka was saying, it's going to be a fine line because, you know, you're constantly balancing the political supply versus the cultural demand of governance, of institutions, of uh, capabilities. So um, the one thing that I heard here, which was very interesting, was, you know, governance and leadership from, you know, a Kenyan perspective, um, even in the context of regionalism, is, it shouldn't be as much about maintaining the status quo as learning how we can live together and, and facilitate this kind of change.
1: V- Vishaka, we talked a lot about democracy, and certainly one of the chapters of the entire Telberg conversation is the current state and potential perilous future of democracy. And that certainly floated, there was both an explicit conversation about it, but floated through a lot of other conversations. Your reflections. And
2: actually, I would put the democracy conversation with ethical leadership. And those were the two strands that kept coming up in different ways in the world, in Kenya. And I was thinking it's not so much that we were out of Africa as much as we were looking at the world in relation to Kenya and Kenya in relation to the world, because we had so many Kenyan participants almost in everything that we did. And so my sense about democracy was that, again, you were very clear and aware that Kenyans are proud of trying to make democracy work. And in that sense, they're still at that stage of working it out, writing the new constitution, decentralizing it, what are the ways Partly because as a post-colonial country, and 50 years is a short time, they're really trying to get their legs up. And it almost, we should think about Kenya or other newly decolonized countries in the context of where America was in the 19th century. So in America, in Europe, we're really feeling this notion of demise, you know, the real potholes that are out there and what's going to happen. Here, again, I would say the energy is in trying to figure out how to make it work in this context. So you're in a very different place, and I actually thought it was interesting to sort of see and feel. How much they're trying to make it work you know i look at constitution writing as okay what what did we do right What not we do wrong because they're still trying to sort that out
1: we can't finish this conversation without discussing the c word china one very senior uh local banker said to me uh hit this concern that the chinese both here in kenya and more genuine africa have very aggressively targeted infrastructure for their financing. Um, the banker said, "Was well, we've accumulated all this debt, um, and now they're beginning, they want to be paid back, and when we can't pay them back, they're asking for operating contracts. And my fear, he said, and this is going to be the question for Shaka, my fear is that this is the start of a new colonialism, that we are now indebted to the Chinese, they will demand repayment and increasingly demand political repayment, uh, not just financial repayment, and will have no, no alternative to that.
2: I mean, this is actually exactly what has happened in Sri Lanka, that the port, first they built it, they gave the loans, couldn't pay the loans, they come in for the management contract, they try to do this exactly the same thing in Malaysia, and Malaysians Mahathir actually pushed back and renegotiated the contract. In Africa, they've been here a lot longer than the One Belt, One Road started, actually. So they have a long-term experience here. And my colleague, Howard French, at Columbia, did the book on China-Africa connection. And one of the things that comes up again and again is that initially they were bringing even their laborers to do this. Now they've learned that's not a good idea. So they are evolving. But the question you mentioned... A couple of students mentioned that to me. So they're all aware of this. And that, to me, said, gee, you know, this whole big global project that China has embarked on with One Belt, One Road, in so many parts. Now in, Athens, in Greece, People are telling me that it's working very well. This is a new way of doing global work.
1: But let me push back on that because, again, the banker's point was colonialism. And I asked him, I said, now, wait a minute. The port is here or the highway is here. If you don't pay, what are they going to do? Are they going to come and get it? And he said, yes, that his fear, not today, but over the course of the next period, is just like the British and the French and the Germans, that they will eventually send force.
2: No, I mean, I think that one should be worried about that. I mean, the thing is that what they're seeing now compared to post-World War II, where Euro-American money was also coming in here, is the difference. And they're trying to figure out what is the difference. And the only model that they see in the Chinese context is a colonial model. And I would worry, I mean, I think that one of the reasons India didn't sign on to One Belt, One Road, even though there was a huge amount of pushback, that why are you doing this, is that fear.
1: Well, the Indians have a history with the Chinese.
2: It's also the Indians have a history with the colonial powers, right? Yes. So there is this kind of a mixture that people are worried about. But I think it's also about, they're trying to figure out, I believe, the difference between how the Americans did the business here, how the Europeans in the post-Cold War, post-World War II period, even though some of them were still colonies at the time. I mean, mind you, Belgian Congo, they were not ready to really go as late as late 50s, you know. So you do have, this is a very new phenomenon for the continent. And that's something we just have to remember that they are newly colonized country. 50 years is a long time for many countries.
1: So Mark, the China colonial nexus concern, conundrum, what do you think? It's, it's definitely
3: in their collective history and, and you can feel it, but, you know, coming back to whether it's China, um, they're the ones here, they're the ones offering investment opportunities. They're the ones offering capital. Um, what's the U S doing? What, what are the Europeans doing? It wasn't until a few years ago that, uh, I don't think it was Goldman, but they set up the African fund. And I think one of our colleagues, Carol, uh, is in, involved in that. Um, so, what opportunities or what access to capital that they have we can sit you know on one side or the other saying you hey, you know you're not you're not uh you know taking my loans in my
1: bank no but i'm asked this is a different kind of capital and it's a very it was a, it was a concern expressed to me about what is the hook it was a it was a nice fish we just ate, but is there a hook inside it? And could that hook come back and be colonialism Redo. redux?
2: I, I do think, though, that the question for them is going to be what are the kind of roadblocks or considerations they're going to put into the relationship. Initially, from what I know from Howard, is that Africans were so happy to have the capital that they didn't really put lots of considerations and contracts. I mean, that's what Malaysia are But you need to really think about that agency to say, how are you going to make a deal? What is the deal? What are you going to have as a safeguard? How are you going to go about doing it? And that's because you're right. The money is coming from China. We don't have the kind of capital.
1: Just to underline, the word is we. Because we, the United States, never put a lot of capital as a government into this continent, but the private sector. But private sector is is many multiple agencies. This is China Inc. money, and that's a dramatically different. That is that does feel much more like the old Old British state model, model. and and that perhaps is why this is. Last last word. Um,
3: Wow. Looking back. Well, that's a good best word. Looking back one on our conversation, but, but two, more importantly, about the experience the last few days. Um I, I, I think I definitely side with Vishaka on the energy, the positivism and, and the hope here. Um, of course they have lots of challenges especially in the leadership and technology. Um, but rewriting the constitution for a third time it's actually a good thing um, because they're learning, they're pivoting, they're iterating. Um, and I, do, I think they'll do it.
2: I think for me, what is so special about Talberg is that we're always trying to figure out local, transnational, global, how they fit together, not fit together, when they collide, when they collude, and when they cooperate. And coming from multiple perspectives, both regional, geographic, and disciplinary perspectives. And that what I think was really special and we need to kind of figure out, that is the Talburg Mojo, that kind of diversity of ideas, diversity of discipline, diversity of perspectives. How do we make a thing out of it that actually moves somewhere? And that came up again and again for me, that... For us, too, like Kenyans, the potential is high. But the risk is high, too, because if it doesn't kind of gel in some ways, then it's just lots of little conversations that can go everywhere. I think that harnessing of that potential and having the conversation, that richness of those locales, levels, and experiences is what's exciting.
1: Alan, what's in your mind? This is where Telberg has to go. I think as Vishaka just said, the genius of Telberg has been and continues to be the diversity of mind, perspective, experience. There was one of the sessions titled, uh, Breaking Borders and Boundaries. That's what we do. It, that is, it, that is a strand of the DNA. But Vishaka just touched on something that we've talked about a lot, uh, both in these sessions, in the board, uh, conversation is necessary, it's a, it's a learning process. It's a fundamental learning process that is incredibly dynamic and needs to continue. Where are the possibilities to translate that conversation into action? Where do we take some of what we experienced the last couple days and, and push harder on it? And I think there are a number of strands that offer potential projects. Uh, both in terms of efforts, for example, in the migration, climate migration space, uh, in terms of further work, the new economics space, in terms of thinking about how politics and economics are colliding uh, and, and how to make that collision constructive instead of destructive. The Chilean case is the latter. I, I think there's, a, there's an agenda that is trying to emerge out of what we've been doing the last couple of days and what we've done before that. That if we're smart and if we're thoughtful and if we do take risks, because if we don't take risks, we should stop doing what we're doing, that it could be both absolutely fabulous Telberg but who cares fabulous for the constituents of Telberg which are all those people uh, and institutions that we that we try to engage with the dump dumpy dump
0: thank you for listening please check for other podcast episodes and video talks on our website talbergfoundation.org. and follow us on social media to stay tuned for upcoming events